Our current systems aimed at reducing conflict are not working. Restorative justice works. I have seen it and I believe in it. 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 going on everybody welcome back to the inspiring radical empathy podcast today laura and clee are joined by two amazing amazing individuals from the gandhi institute for nonviolence right in rochester new york first we have bianca pointner bianca was born in austria she was introduced to nonviolent communication and restorative practices in 2011 and in 2016 attended a one-year intensive training to become a certified transformational coach through the u.s-based leadership that works program she has been involved as a coach and an artist in jail projects in both Germany and India. She transitioned into self-employment as a coach serving and empowering individuals around gender inequality, grief, and belonging. And in 2017, she moved to Rochester and joined the Gandhi Institute. She now serves as a community trainer, facilitating restorative conversations and offerings around conflict resolution, grief, anger, and nonviolence. Bianca feels passionate about traveling, merging art and nonviolent principles, as well as exploring the importance of home and belonging within a biracial context. And then we have Alex Hubble. Alex is originally from Vietnam and moved to Rochester with her mother at two years old. Her formative years were with Rochester City School District's John Williams No. 5 School and School of the Arts. And in 2010, she graduated from Alfred University with a BFA in art and design and promptly returned to her community in Rochester, excited to practice all she'd learned right on her home turf. After serving two consecutive terms for Rochester AmeriCorps, Alex was brought onto the Gandhi Institute as a community trainer. She is eager to share her love of solar punk, reading, art, and social justice with all the students that she works with in the Rochester area. These two are amazing, and this episode is so good. So let's get into it. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Bianca and Alex, I have a check and circle question for us. We'd like to start with this connection round to just kind of get into the spirit of restorative practices. So share with us, what is a win that you've had this past, past month? It could be professional or personal. I'll share, I'll share mine first. I last night had an opportunity to go grab a few drinks with a colleague in the area. We actually never met in person before, but she is a young female executive director of a summer camp. That's about, it's on Lake George. So it's about 30 minutes away. And it was just lovely to be able to sit across from somebody who has some of the same qualities and identities as I do, but also some of the same struggles in her position. So it was great to be able to relate to her. I felt like a personal win, but also a professional win because we'll lean on each other, but also it was just good to be able to relate to somebody. I'll pass it to you, Lee. All right. The win that, I, that came to mind for me was a, a bit of context. I'm a social work student right now and I'm in my first field placement and I'm at a refugee outreach center and I've been working with one client for a long time who has been difficult for me to connect with and I've been worried about it. She doesn't speak English, so that's the first hurdle with a lot of our clients. And she is typically pretty annoyed about coming in and doesn't 
trust a lot of the people there, which is totally fair. And last Friday, we had a really good connection where I asked her to teach me some Swahili words, which is her native language. And it was a great way for us to connect. And she was laughing with me and I'd never seen her smile and it felt really good. And the other cool thing that happened was on the back of my phone case, it's like clear for folks who are listening, but I have a Polaroid photo of me and a camper at Stomping Ground. And she got so excited about it. She thought I was a mom and she's a mom of two young boys. And I said, that's actually a kid I worked with over the summer at a summer camp. I'm not a mom, but I want to be a mom like you someday. And she loved it. And we chatted a lot about being a mom and it was really good. And I like ran to my supervisor and I was like, she just laughed. Like we just had such a good conversation. She was like, she never smiles. So it was really nice. And I'm looking forward to seeing her again this week. So that's my, that's my win from this month. Can I pass it to you, Alexandria? Yes, I am ready. I would say my win for this past month has been doing like we did this only one time and it was with Bianca and another colleague of mine, China. We have this um, sewing group that we're doing to help people of color find a place to tell their stories through textile. It's a quilting group and we didn't have any registrations for a long time. And then we said, you know what, let's just come together, just the three of us and do an Instagram live and just sew together like out there on the internet. And I had a really lovely time sitting and asking them questions and sewing together. And that felt like a really big win for me because it maybe the isolation has been kind of creeping in a little bit more. I love being isolated, but you know, sometimes a little too much is too much. So that felt like a a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And um, I will, I'll pass to Bianca. Yeah. It's so delightful to hear everyone's sharing. I love the question. So one big thing for me, so I, I've been struggling for years with the immigration process and a lot of uncertainty about whether I can stay in this country or not. And a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. and yeah, lots of resilience building the last two years for sure. And in January, I finally had my immigration interview and I got the approval. So it's such a big deal. So I get to stay. I like I have choice. And yeah, I feel like I've been battling this immigration invisible beast this last two years. And the biggest win about that is actually that I get to go home again, because I haven't seen my Indian family members in years and my family home in Europe. So I get to fly home in March. So if everything goes well, so I'm I can't wait to see my people again. And yeah, that's that's a huge one right now. And, and everyone at the Institute, I feel like, has been so in the process with me. So it feels like a professional win as well. <laughs> wow. That's wonderful. I feel a little bit more connected to both of you. And mm-hmm. I can't stop smiling for those who are, who are not watching. This feels like it's going to be an easy, comfortable conversation. So I'm so glad you both are joining us. This whole this season of the podcast has been about talking to restorative justice practitioners in the communities that they serve and trying to figure out a little bit more about what it looks like to 
actually do this work. So the first season of the podcast was more about the theory and the change it can have in the world. But now we want to talk to individuals who have who have been a part of circles, different types of circles in, in different communities and in different spaces and how it actually works. Bianca, I want to ask you a question first. I'm wondering if you can talk about the intersection between nonviolence and restorative justice and how those things are connected. Yeah, I'm going to try for sure. So mm-hmm. I see nonviolence kind of like in two ways of principled nonviolence and also strategic nonviolence and spe- specific practices. And I also feel like nonviolence can be seen as like an umbrella term for a lot that is where restorative justice is one part of it. Mm-hmm. And I actually was so blessed that my colleague Jonathan and me actually, we participated in a King and Nonviolence certification process to become facilitators and we had incredible mentors. And what I've learned this past year is that David Jensen and Dr. Bernard Lafayette, two people who codified kind of the message of King and tried to come up with kind of like, dissecting, okay, what was the civil rights movement? What worked? What aged well? What did not age well? And how can we apply it to today? And that's kind of like context to what I'm trying to kind of get at is that nonviolence for me and and, in King and nonviolence, it's not so much about what not to do, not being violent, but about what to do to fight injustice. Because I think there's a misconception often that nonviolence just means like passivity and it's not mm-hmm. efficient, but it's actually very much there. There's so many schools of thought and so many processes and practices and structures and systems that look at what can be done. And I see restorative justice as part of that for sure, even though it doesn't obviously come from the Kenyan, Kenyan school or from the Kenyan you know, thought process, but very much from indigenous, from indigenous wisdom. But I think it's just part of it and one model to look at, you know, how to heal harm or conflict or to move us forward. So yeah, that's kind of what what I want to say to that. And there's one actually piece of writing that I want to suggest or like kind of like have a, yeah, have Mm -hmm. a lot of love for is there's a a sermon by King that's called When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. And it's about Mm -hmm. the story of Orthrin Orthrin Lucy, who was the first black student, I think in a university in Alabama, I I might be wrong, and what happened there and the differentiation between positive peace and negative peace. And I think that really sums up what nonviolence is to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. I I liked hearing you talk about nonviolence as action oriented rather than passive and that there's a lot of systems and processes and practices within that that people might not think about they have more of a they hear that word and they have a mindset about what that is but there's a lot of layers to it too alex can you from from your perspective and the work that you've done with the gandhi institute or the work that you've done in your life how does nonviolence connect to the restorative justice movement I like to think of it like a moving away of a dichotomy. So either like we can do violence to each other or we don't do violence to each other. That is so restricting because nonviolence and restorative practices is it allows for that middle ground of like, well, what if violence happened now? What? Mm. now now what what is the choice that we have and when we give ourselves choice there's a lot of self-determination in that like we get to choose who we are as people how we interact with each other interpersonally and 
even in a broader sense, like how we interact with the earth, because there's restoration in our practices with the earth too. There's, there's violence that we do to the earth. And then there are options of restoration for what has been done. So I like to think of nonviolence as like this middle ground of like, well, what happens when violence does happen? Uh, because you can't control every individual person, but you can give them the option to choose how they come back from a mistake or how they come back from like a, a choice that was made in anger. And so, so yeah, like I don't like to live with like that black and white. The gray is where nonviolence thrives. And for me, it's really about harm reduction. And that's never 100%. Like, I wish it could be. And that's really idealistic. But harm reduction is like the best that we can do right now as the type of human beings that we are right now. So that for me is nonviolence meeting restorative justice. In really simple terms, you just make it sound so realistic. Like we're not going to live in a society where violence never happens. And... I think that's so important to highlight because I think a lot of people get tripped up on this stuff because it's not what we know and it's not what we're used to. And it sounds radically different from what we've grown up in and what we are used to. And I just love how you worded that because it alleviates some of the stress about it'll never work. We've never done it before. I don't know if it's going to work to say this is actually pretty accessible and it's simply just realistic. That's, that's what I'm marinating on right now. I'm wondering if we can transition, Bianca, I'll throw it to you first. Can you tell us what grief circles are? And from there, what happens in a grief circle? Yeah, so I can probably just speak to what the grief circles are for us and how we have been holding them. Great. They've already been happening before I came on to the Institute. So it's kind of you know, before the pandemic, obviously, we had um, in-person circles at the Institute, and they they looked a little bit different than online now. And I can speak to kind of like both. So they have really, they've taken many shapes. We changed them up a bit since the pandemic. But before, like, so in, in the in-person grief circles that we did were, I think, really inspired by Joanna Mace's work. I don't know if you've heard of her. It's like the work that reconnects. She's an author and a teacher and a scholar of Buddhism, very much an inspiration in systems thinking and deep ecology. I really highly recommend her work. So we would basically in person circle up. And what I appreciate about Joanna Macy's practices, and she offers a lot of them, is that you have actually certain objects that represent certain feelings or states that we are in. So there's, for example, a bowl that stands for emptiness or mm. maybe a twig that is rage or leaves that stand for grief. And I like the different objects and the interaction with them as well, because grief is so much more than just sadness, right? It has so many more roots and it's everyone grieves differently and everyone experiences grief differently. And grief means so many different things to us. So we would circle up and then it's kind of like, and that relates to the reserve, the restorative practices that it's kind of like, there's like a talking piece. Everyone goes after the other, if you feel moved and you go to the center of the circle and pick up whatever feels resonating and you can just kind of express whatever comes up when you hold that object. And what I really appreciate about this process is it's not about fixing. It's not about mending. It's not about advice giving or, Hey, I, 
I went through the same thing. Let me tell you how I experienced it. It's just witnessing one another. And I can only describe it as deeply connecting and magic, really, what happens in the room. So that, that and, and I actually attended one of those grief circles when I started at the Institute and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is incredible. And then when the pandemic hit, we were like, okay, I think we, we all might not call it grief, but grief is basically, you know, some sort of loss. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be the loss of a structural routine. We might grieve something we never even had, like a mm. happy childhood, you know. Mm-hmm. And in and, and these tumultuous times and in times of crisis, so much got surfaced. And even what we collectively went through uh, here in the States and in the world. So, yeah, so we offered them every week. I opened the space maybe one or two times a week together with some colleagues, we kind of switched up and we allowed people to come on. And how we switched it up is that we, instead of the the objects, we incorporate actually creative art processes. So we would just sit together in silence and encourage people to, however they connect with the sadness or grief or whatever is alive in their body, take 20, 30 minutes of silence and encourage people to journal. Maybe we offer a poem. If that's helpful, listen to a song, draw, illustrate, whatever comes up and really take 20, 30 minutes by ourselves, but in in presence with one another. And then we go around and share what came up. Some shared art, some shared the, the thoughts, some stayed in silence. And what's important is that whenever we're done sharing, the whole group, the only thing, the way we respond is we only say, we hear you. Mm. And that's all we do. We hear you. So we acknowledge what's been said and move to the next person. And yeah, I could talk a lot about what effect it had on me and impact and mm. stories about that process. But yeah, that's basically how, how we have been doing it. Yeah. And I'm curious, Alex, if you have more to add to that or yeah, have other experiences. Or... That was perfect, Bianca. I loved everything that you said. It really is. It really is like magic in its ritual in its ritual sense of like, after you speak your piece and then someone tells you sometimes in joint, like when we're in person and we're doing it with 50 people, 50 people mm-hmm. telling you at the end of your story that they hear you is real powerful, real powerful. I'm always crying. I'm a big crier mm-hmm. and I always cry during grief circles. So yeah, they're one of my favorites. Wow. My brain is on fire. It, I feel I feel like the I'm imagining a room full of 50 people having the opportunity to self-determine, to use your word, Alex, how they process grief and to do it in a space where there are people ready to just witness it seems like an opportunity that most people can't even imagine existing. I think the way that we think about processing grief or sadness or trauma or any of those kind of heavy, hard feelings is often like so solution oriented or so transactional. But this is way more expansive. And it's like, it can be determined by the person who is talking. Mm -hmm. And that 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 gives so much more control, autonomy to the individual and and trusts the, the individual to know what they need to heal. And I think, yeah, it just, it seems like a a deeply meaningful and impactful space that y'all create. 
Laura's brain is on fire? You heard her say it, so I think it's time for a narrator break. Alex and Laura both spent a few minutes there discussing the phrase self-determination. While I'm not sure if Alex shares Stomping Ground's understanding of self-determination theory, I think it comes pretty dang close. So let's talk about it. Self-determination theory has been a guiding concept for camp over the years. Richard Ryan and Edward Desi, the founders of self-determination theory, state that people are happiest and motivated when their three psychological needs are met. They define those needs as autonomy, belonging, and competence. So let's break them down. Autonomy. Autonomy refers to behavior that is self-endorsed, that you agree with and find congruent within yourself. And when you're fully autonomous, you're wholeheartedly behind the thing that you're doing. Belonging. Belonging is a feeling that you matter to the other people that are there, but it's also enhanced by your giving to them and your being able to matter in their lives. And lastly, we have competence, to feel effective in your environment, to have some sense of mastery of the things that are important to you, and the environment that you're in can have a big impact on that experience too. We apply these ideas in so many different ways at camp. When we think about how best we can build outdoor play spaces or how we can structure the teen programs, we know we want our kids to feel some combination of these three things. And the light bulb here, it's the same in circles. The easiest one to see might be the belonging piece, right? That feeling that you matter and that you're able to give to folks and be vulnerable with them because of that. And I think essentially autonomy and competence are talking about a similar thing when it comes to circles. They heighten the importance of trust. So when we can feel connected in a space and feel a sense of trust from the room and the facilitator, and we set ourselves up for the highest likelihood that the circle will be effective. Self-determination theory, pretty freaking cool, huh? I'll leave you with this. Throughout the season, we've used the recipe analogy. What are the ingredients to a successful circle? And the recipe changes each time. But hopefully, you can add these seasonings to your spice cabinet. Eh? And when you cook that chicken, aka circle, okay, okay, I, I'm, I'm being silly now. Let's get back to our awesome guests. We're out of here. On that, I want to ask, Bianca, you mentioned that you could talk forever about the impact it's had on you. And that's really what this season is all about. The people who have actually been vulnerable enough and take a step into these spaces. And I want to know a little bit about the impact that these circles have had on you. What is it like as a participant and or a facilitator? Yeah, I, I like that you just said as a participant and or a facilitator. I think that's also one nice aspect of it. Whoever holds the space also participates. So mm -hmm. even if I'm facilitating, I'm also yeah. gonna be part of it so it's again like the circle process right where I'm also part of it and I'm not putting myself above it or try to hold it all but can really be in it with people which has been really powerful too yeah for me I've been really really interested in grief work and trauma and how 
especially, you know, as I said earlier, not knowing and living with this uncertainty in general of not knowing, can I even stay here or can I not? And just through the pandemic, a lot was heightened. And I think, I, I guess the most powerful for me thing for me was just to be known, just to be heard, just to be seen. And I've been so conditioned, like I think many of us, when it comes to grief, sadness, or conflict, that in this binary way, good or bad, mm. or that grief or sadness is something that's uncomfortable, so we don't talk about it or just like get over it, right? Or like try to have those stages and go through the stages and get over it when it's really something that just lives in you. And I, I feel like in those spaces, I felt like all the comparative suffering or the toxic positivity or someone telling me where in the process I should be is totally debunked and gone and I can just be with one another and I also feel like whenever someone else shares a, a moving story of what happened to them something in me gets activated mm. so I whenever someone else shares oh this is what I've gone through I feel I literally feel it in my chest I'm just kind of touching it right now it's like something opens up in me and then I really deeply am connected with this interconnectedness with anybody in my environment and, you know, the, the earth, I, I am actually connected to that interdependence and interconnectedness and yeah, something just opens up and it feels radical mm. and it's not about, you know, obsessing with it. I think it's kind of like Kit Miller actually talked about it as grief hygiene. Mm. It's like, as much as I, you know, when I go get up and brush my teeth, it's like every day I take 10, 20 minutes and I just grieve. And mm -hmm. it's like a process, you know, and it's just part of me. And then, yeah, I move on with my day and it's just part of me. It's, it's just there. Yeah. So there were many moments in, in those circles where I was just like deeply moved and touched and yeah, strangers that all of a sudden became so close to me, for, just for the moment, right? Yeah. And then we go again. I love how you spoke to the physical responses that can happen in circles. I've experienced that. And I just love how you worded it. I don't think I've ever been able to put that eloquently. I'm grateful to you, Bianca, for giving me words to explain this now in a in a more authentic way. I think there was a time last summer where Laura and I were in a few circles with the same group of campers who were going through a lot of conflict and we hit kind of a what do I want to call it it kind of felt like we hit the tip of the iceberg we had been in circles before and it felt like the campers were sharing a lot about how they felt towards one another but none of them were fully releasing what was going on for them individually. And that takes time. Finally, one night conflict kind of gets to the head. And not only are these two campers the most frustrated with each other that they've been the whole week, but all of their cabin mates and friends are now also fed up. And it's like, you're affecting my camp experience. And the one camper who has been kind of the main perpetrator of a lot of the conflict breaks down in an emotional way that I had never seen him. And I think he's sorry. I think he's exhausted. I think he feels shame. 
and he decides that he's going to tell his cabin something really hard that's happening at home not to excuse his behavior but to own that because of what's happening back home in his personal life he has made a lot of mistakes at camp and he finally sees them as connected he's 11 also and he goes into the cabin he's just cried to me and laura um, and we're like, what do you think me and Laura have context to what's happening at home? And we say, what do you think it would feel like if you shared that with your cabin mates? And he's really scared. And he practices what he would say to Laura and I. And we say, do you want us to go with you to say this to your cabin? And this moment will stick with me throughout my entire life. The whole cabin of 10 kids is seated on two bunk beds sitting at each other and it's dark and there are some flashlights on in the cabin all the lights are off and this camper sits down and in a pretty rushed way through tears explains that something really hard is going on with his dad at home and he tells the campers and this group of 10 and 11 year olds sit and listen to him and they don't again excuse him for what he's done or downplay how much they're annoyed with him or frustrated with him for some of the harm that he's created but they listen to him and there's this like physical feeling that bianca just described of like exhale like it's been said we've all been wondering what was going on and he's owned it and it's like I was in tears <laughs> and um, the camper was in tears and a, color, and a couple other campers were in tears as well just because it was such an emotional response. And the next day, one of the coolest things I got to do is Laura and I felt it was pretty important to tell parents and caregivers what had happened. It was like a really big discussion and, and moment, I think, in like the developmental phase of this group of kids and explaining to parents a lot of parents cried to me on the phone and were like, I've never heard of that side of my child. And I'm grateful that they got to see another child be vulnerable in that way. And it was really special. And it was an emotional and a physical response. I think that the what you said, Bianca, about it being witnessing, I think, clear. I remember sitting there with you and it was really powerful. And the, the kid's idea about grief hygiene. I think a lot of what had happened before that moment of clarity and, and release and relief that this camper felt and like the rest of the cabin was able to benefit from as well was a lack of, of grief hygiene in a lot of ways. It was like, mm. how do I take, I have this big heavy thing that I'm carrying with me and it's exhausting and it's affecting how I see everything and all of my interactions and being comfortable enough to share that with Clee at first and then to be invited to share that with the rest of the cabin and to have the cabin just sit on the quietly in the dark and, and witness it was enough to kind of shift the way he thinks about himself. He thinks about the, the space that he's in, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm imagining in a 50 person grief circle at the Institute or on Zoom, there, there is such power in just that witnessing piece. I think that's one of my big takeaways from today that it doesn't necessarily have to, again, be solution oriented or transactional or a big aha moment in any way. It can just be witnessing. Clint, you have a hook. I have a hook. I think that for me, 
what happened there and the overwhelming sense of gratitude and physical response I had was thinking about him not getting this opportunity in other spaces he's a part of. And had he done the same harm in saying disrespectful things to other kids like he did at camp or, you know, things reaching really tense situations, most spaces in the systems and structures that currently exist kick people out. And I had this overwhelming, like, it took him a week to get to that point to be vulnerable and honest and share where he was really coming from. And it scares me that he is going to grow up and maybe be in spaces that won't give him that time. That's like the most scary and sad part to me. And I'm grateful and I'm hopeful that what he felt there proved to him that it's okay to do that. So that that is what I see as such great potential to spaces that allow for time and restorative responses to take place. Alex, I'm just curious if you have an example of like the power of a grief circle that you've been a part of. I've, I've done a lot of grief circles um, and like in person is really different from online. There are lots of just different strategies, but one of my most recent ones was helping myself go through as a facilitator and a participant with a group of people who are strangers. I like to try to put myself out there as much as possible, just to show an example of what a grief circle could do. And I decided to talk about a student of mine who like recently died or not recently, but who had died and working in working with students, with children for a long span of time, that might happen, but I wasn't prepared. You know, you're never prepared for death. So I had a really incredible experience or like about two incredible experiences because I did this story twice and you can do the same story as many times as you need to for it to feel like it has a place in you that it like can sit for a while and I did it twice I did it once with a one-on-one grief circle on the computer and then I did it again with me and a group of like five other women And both times, it was an extremely healing process. And because I was also a facilitator, I was also trying to like, make sure the other person was comfortable. But because people kind of respect your grief sometimes, and especially when they are aware, like we're about to sit and do a grief circle together, they're very aware, and they're very respectful and they are eager to connect and eager to open up. So I've had very deep experiences with people who were strangers to me that I share a story where I'm just like drowning in my own tears and feeling held online, which is amazing Mm -hmm. because the internet is not, known to be a place that holds, you know, it's like a, the wild west out here. But (laughs) in that moment, I felt so held by like digital representations of human beings. So, Mm. so yeah, that's, that's my own like little moment of grief circle magic. I think Laura has a follow-up question, but quick clarifier. 
do people, how do folks get connected to grief circles through Gandhi? If I want to be a part of one, if I identify as grieving myself, I reach out and say, what services do you provide? I want to be a part of this. Or are you currently, do you currently have any for, formal ties with certain organizations or tell us about that? Right now we have, we don't have them on an events calendar scheduled right now. You know, it's interesting because so usually I would set them up, right? And then we have official registration and promotion for our social media. Mm. Sometimes there were organizations who reached out and said, oh, we heard about this. Can you do it for our group, for example? And then we would come in and facilitate or hold that. Even though it's really powerful or it has been really powerful in the past to have multiple people or like, dozens of people together the truth is when you advertise grief circle people are not jumping on it it's like you know grief uh, it's like we almost we even I want to be transparent about that we even tried to rename it maybe Mm. you know and say working through tough times was what what we called it you know because it's like grief is just a term I think yeah, has stimulate something in us that doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, I want to go to a grief circle. So there were circles where I was by myself. I just still kept the space open and did it by myself, sometimes one or two, sometimes reoccurring people who came multiple times. So yeah, but if you, for example, are someone who is really interested in that work or trying to experience it, reach out to us for sure. That's something we can offer. But also, I'm hopeful that we're going to put them on the events calendar again. As Alex said, we have so many moving parts right now but yeah it's it's interesting can i actually add something to what was said before is that okay yes because it's so interesting what you said clear about your fear of that little human growing up not trusting or like maybe not being in spaces or environments where dad is invited that you offered him or offered them and I, I see that so often that, I mean, when we talk about nonviolence in the, in the format of communication styles or conflict resolutions, we talk, to, we talk a lot about needs-based communication, right? That every action, everything we do is basically a strategy to meet the need of ours. And there's basic human needs that connect us, like we matter, we belong, we are known, we are safe, you know, not just food, shelter, water. Mm-hmm. If I, I mean, we all know that, right? I mean, I'm so grateful to be at the Institute where that's not even a question anymore, but most spaces I facilitate in, people don't trust they matter. Yes. Their feelings and needs don't matter. And how can you then belong in it? And it's interesting because people reach out for skill building, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How can we be more efficient, more productive in this beautiful, you know, capitalistic society and still like, you know, efficiency and, you know, productivity when in fact, when I'm in the spaces and we we teach about skills, all I'm feeling is people mostly just want to express that they they, that something's on their heart Mm. and want us to share their stories. So I really believe in the power of storytelling, which I think the grief circles are. And yeah, so it was really touching to hear that story, Mm -hmm. like about that little person. And I wish I would have had those people in my life when I was younger, because I'm just assuming we all maybe not always had that, right? And I'm hearing so many parallels in the way you both talk about grief, in the way that we often talk about conflict specifically in the camp space because Mm -hmm. the way that we onboard staff or explain our systems to parents and, and campers is talking about how just as Alex said about violence, 
it's never going to completely, we're never going to live. It doesn't seem as though we'll ever live in a violence-free society. And, you know, the alternative also doesn't have to be only focusing on violence. And that's a lot of the ways we talk about conflict too. Transitioning from conflict is something to shy away from to conflict is an opportunity to connect. And we're all going to live in this weird summer camp bubble together. Of course, we're going to butt heads and get annoyed with each other and conflict is going to come up. So instead of not having a system in place to address it, or instead of letting things build up, we are all agreeing in our community space to address it and talk through it when it comes up. And it's clarifying and motivating for me to hear you both talk about grief and nonviolence in that way to validate the work that we're doing and knowing that this is existing in other spaces. Alex, I'm wondering if you can walk me through the steps of a grief circle from how people get involved to what happens during what your role as a facilitator is, and then what some of the outcomes at the end of it might look like. So I haven't run a grief circle in a while. Um, And so Bianca, if I miss something, please definitely add it in at the end. For, from my experience, a grief circle can start with the space, making the space feel open and welcoming, taking care of some of like the human needs. So making sure it's comfortable and warm enough, making sure that the light level is just right for like the mood that you want to set. Not like, oh, I want this to be a sad mood, but like, I want this to be warm and soft and caring. So if we're doing it in person at the Institute, we have a space that we clear out, we put chairs in a circle, we bring in some crates, we put that in the middle as like our centerpiece. And that centerpiece will often have things on it, like a a tablecloth, natural objects like rocks, stones, sticks, sometimes there are leaves, there are candles sometimes as well. Then you, you know, have people come in and you have a space for them to come in. You, I always think about circle spaces. Uh, they have to have two or three ways to exit. You cannot have an enclosed circle. That's very uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially with young people who are in conflict with each other. Like you, you want to have exit avenues and then, you know, boxes of tissues at lots of different spaces that people aren't, they don't have to like get up and go somewhere to get a tissue that it is around and um, able to be passed to them quickly. So that's for me, like the space. And I think about the space a lot because I want to feel comfortable when I am upset and I don't want to feel like cold or like itchy. I don't know. Like that's just a sense of, of space that I really need in order to share. So I think the, the steps of it, I think it, it is kind of like very dynamic. So I, I personally, when I hold them, I'm trying to be very in tune with the group spirit somehow and who, who I'm actually with. So every circle looks different based on what the needs are. But it's very similar to restorative practice where it's like you have questions, right, that you ask. So usually a start off a space. So I, I loved how you described it, Alex, to setting the stage and to make it as warm and safe as possible for everyone and invite bravery. 
Yeah, so I would actually always ask, hey, share your name. What's important for you to be here today? What brought you here? Or yeah, just like having just like one round of just like hearing each other's voice. And then I would just ask really like, and that's the, the, the steps I think is now depending on what practice we choose. As I mentioned earlier, online, I've done mostly the creative process of silence and silent journaling, drawing, or maybe meditating. And when we're in person, I really always draw from Joanna Macy's book. So there is actually a book that she like that came out in the 30th anniversary edition, which is called World as Lover, World as Self. And there's a whole section back about practices, spiritual practices for activists. And there's all sorts of practices. You can also hold yourself and very clear guidelines on what's important and doing your own work as a facilitator first as well to make it as safe as possible for everyone else, um, or at least be in the journey. So there is no cookie cutter way of this is how I'm planning this session. It always really comes literally when people come into the space, I'm just trying to really work with what's present. And I, I think, Alex, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think we've never addressed anything that happened specifically, like you said, like the uprising 2020 or the pandemic. We just realized things are bad right now. The things that whatever's happening is not working. The strategies we're using are not working. So let's just open a space and see what happens to just mm. show, your, show up as your full vulnerable self and see what happens. And those stories come anyways. So yeah, that's what I would say to that. And I and we try to really fade out in the end. Once we say we hear you and we completed the circle, I might end it with a poem. I offer people if they want to stay longer and have something to share that I'm open for that. I don't want to just, especially with Zoom, you're like end meeting and then all of a sudden you're in your room and you're like, oh my gosh, I just shared myself and now I'm alone. So that can sit with you in a weird way. So I'm trying to also completed in a way that's kind of peaceful and, and and safe and yeah there is no eating while we do it because I think people eat their feelings their snacks afterwards because you get really hungry afterwards but yeah that's basically what what ours look like and I know there's so many people that, that do it differently or have so much more to offer for that but that's basically how we've navigated those spaces I do remember something to add to that we don't do things for specific reasons, but every now and then we do have a holiday talking circle, mm. which feels very much like a grief circle for me because it's, you know, the holidays are m- meant to be very joyful, but that's not, that's not true or authentic for a lot of people. Mm. And they need a space to come together and just talk about their truths together in a climate that is like really trying to make sure that you're cheerful. So we do have holiday talking circles that that we've done in the past that very much grief circles on theme of holidays. Mm. Thank you for sharing. That gives me a lot more context and insight into the specific practice of um, assembling a grief circle or offering a grief circle. Two of my biggest takeaways, I think, from this whole conversation have been the the self-determination piece that you originally talked about, Alex, of you're setting up the space, but then folks who join can determine for themselves what they need and, and fulfill that need through the circle. And then the expansiveness of it, it's like, you know, maybe almost 
narrowing the view or trying to put a cap on or label what is happening reduces the ability for it to be expansive and kind of healing for however you show up in the moment, which you might not know until you get there and you hear other people's stories. Like stories has also um, been a big theme thinking about people sharing their story and that being a healing opportunity. To close today, I want to ask you both, what do you think that this movement the nonviolent movement, the restorative justice movement needs to move forward. And Alex, I'm going to ask you first. I believe it needs more people who are courageous because it takes a lot of courage to be this vulnerable with another human being. And nonviolence does require vulnerability and it requires a sense of courage to connect and to be sad or scared or hurt, Mm -hmm. especially hurt, to be hurt with each other um, or hurt for each other. That's definitely something that would really boost this movement. I think of it in kind of like three ways. I I think it really needs the conditions and structures and system in place that actually support the work we do. And yeah, support this kind of approach of reimagining justice. And I think we need organizers and mobilizers. I think we need rethinking and skill building around conflict, for example, like all the nonviolence education. And I think we need healers. And I think we need people who address trauma and grief and rage. And we need builders and kind of rebuilders of, of trust and strengthening of our communities and also radical celebration of life and rest and art. And I think when I think of those three levels, I think we need a level of it that is as organized and as disciplined as our, uh, as this country's military. If we were, I mean, what world would it be if we would have an army of peacemakers that are as disciplined and as funded and as organized as the military of this country? Where would we be? And a part of me is just excited about that vision. And I also agree with Alex that it takes a lot of courage and a lot of discipline. And we talk about it at the Ghana Institute all the time. It's I can only speak for myself. I'm not trying to preach or pretend I have it all figured out. It's all a process. I'm learning. I'm failing. I I go over the principles of nonviolence all the time in my day-to-day life, and I get angry about it. I don't understand it, and then I totally connect with it again. I've been in circles where I was like, this is messy. This is awful. This is not working to witnessing the most transformational moments where I was like, this is again, magic. So it's messy, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think it needs those, for me, those three things and also more awareness individually where you fit into it and where you thrive. Thank you both for sharing your experiences and being vulnerable with us. I have learned so much from this conversation and it was both like the word nourishing is coming to mind for me. I feel very nourished right now and so much meaningful conversation came from this. And so I'm very grateful for you both. And I can't wait to all get together in person and drink tea at the Institute, as you suggested, Bianca. (laughs) I need that now. Absolutely. 
I want to say I'm so grateful for you all to create the space where it can be conversation and we don't have to feel like we have to show up as experts or something you know we can have just a conversation and i i really am so grateful that you make the space warm for us so thank you